Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, here as always with John Mitchell. We're going to be talking about Week 10 action that happened last week. We're, and then we're going to be diving into Week 11 against the spread, giving you our upset picks and our locks, and diving into some food and drink options, giving you the whole tailgater experience. With that said, how are you doing this week, John? I'm doing great. Uh, the picks have been going better in recent weeks. Uh, our, our disagreements have been uh, more normal, so we've both been picking better, so that's always good. And uh, we got a, a great slate of games this weekend, and last weekend actually ended up being kind of a pleasant surprise. There were several good games last weekend that kind of came out of nowhere and made it a really fun overall weekend, I thought. Yeah, it did, most certainly. Allowed for a lot of good picks when we were looking at best wins and worst losses and whatnot. So let's dive right into that. What do you have as your best win of Week 10? You know, this one might be a little off the radar, but it's kind of also, for me, a season achievement because what Jonathan Smith's doing in Corvallis with Oregon State this year I think is really noteworthy. Um, The Beavers have been so hapless in recent years ever since Mike Riley departed for Nebraska. I just haven't had that same... um, ability they had in recent years. The Civil War used to be one of my favorite games every year, and it was just always a back-and-forth kind of game. Oregon's obviously dominated that series, much to your delight in recent years, obviously. But, you know, Jonathan Smith took over his alma mater, a really downtrodden program, obviously had some growing pains last year, as expected. But Oregon State's sitting here 4-4 four and four after a 56-38 road win over, over Arizona last week. So they're sitting 500 with, you know, four games left to play. They can split the rest of the season. That'd be maybe the most unexpected bowl team of 2019. I don't think anyone expected the Beavers to have a shot at bowl eligibility. I think it's still difficult to envision it because they still got to play Washington, Arizona State, Washington State, and Oregon. So it's still an uphill battle for them to get there. But I wouldn't count them out at this point. I've been really impressed overall, not just what they did on Saturday against Arizona, but what they've done all season. Um, Jake Lutton's been really terrific at quarterback for Oregon State, and I think that's really a huge reason the Beavers have been able to take a step forward this year has been his performance um, under center. He's thrown 19 touchdown passes to just one interception, so his ability to be efficient has really helped Oregon State. Their margin for error isn't as much as other teams. They don't have quite as much talent as everyone else, so his ability to take care of the football has been huge, and for Oregon State, to be 500 after the first weekend of November. I don't think anyone saw that coming. Yeah, that's really ridiculous. As a Duck fan, it's been nice seeing the Beavers down, but at the same time, some of the most fun times I've had watching the Ducks were when both of them had something on the line in the Civil War. So, I, I, you know, on one hand, you hope for your rival to do poorly, but on the other hand, you want your rival to be doing as well as possible so that when you finally do defeat them, it means that much more dejection for them. And honestly, Oregon State is playing an impressive game all around. Um, You know, they had their issues on defense as a lot of Pac-12 teams do, so especially when you're playing a team like Arizona that can throw a lot at the chalkboard. 
But like you said, Jake Luton's doing really well. Um, and also, Oregon State has a ground game for the first time in a while that's been really decent. Artavis Pierce and Jermar Jefferson both went off for over 100 yards against the Wildcats. And it, it, it was a really impressive all-around performance. I definitely think that was one of the better wins of the weekend. And honestly, one of the bigger surprises for me as well. So. Yeah, I think honestly, Zach. To one more point on that, I think it's, I think there's a legit argument that Jonathan Smith's the Pac-12 Coach of the Year at this point of the season. I know they're only four and four, which you don't usually see a coach that's middling at 500 win it. But I don't know if I've seen anyone do a better job in that conference this year. Yeah, just the turnaround with that team and the entire culture around that team has been really impressive in the way it's all turned about so quickly. I would honestly have absolutely no problem giving that award to Jonathan Smith this year. On that note, for my best win, I'm going to stay in the Pac-12. Obviously, as a Duck, seeing the Ducks do what they did to USC this weekend was utterly impressive. You know, I I said in the picks last week, it's something around the lines of 45-31. I figured Oregon would cover the spread score a lot of points, but not score quite this many points or have their defense perform quite as well as it did. You know, they spotted the Trojans a 10-point lead in the first quarter before they went on that 21-point run in the second. Uh, USC scored that late touchdown with 20 seconds left or so in the second quarter. And then Michael Wright returns that kick 100 yards right on the ensuing kickoff completely breaks any momentum that USC had going into the locker room at halftime and just, you know, absolutely killed whatever USC could do. Keaton Slovis threw three interceptions, had one of them return for a pick six. I'll talk about that more in a little bit. But yeah, and then Justin Herbert, he had the one really bad pick, but otherwise, what a ridiculous game from him. You take that pick out of the equation, he was 21 of 25, threw for only 225 yards, but had three touchdowns. Really just a great bounce back game for him after sort of a quiet week. And uh, Jawan Johnson, you know, as somebody who transferred to Penn State, I've liked joking that who's going to win the trade, Penn State or Oregon, flip-flopping the two of us. And if he keeps playing like he did with seven receptions, 106 yards, and all three of uh, Herbert's touchdown passes hauled in, he's going to win that trade hands down, at least this season. Oh, yeah, Uh, undoubtedly. And, you know, it's interesting because USC got off to such a good start in that game, obviously. It broke out to the 10-0 lead. Even after Oregon finally scored, it's 10-7 USC getting close to halftime. The Trojans drive all the way down to the Oregon three, and then you get a strip sack fumble. um, And then Oregon proceeds to somehow put 21 points on the board in three minutes to make it a 28-17 lead at halftime. They got a touchdown right after that. Slovis throws a pick six. And then after a USC touchdown to get some momentum back, you get the kickoff return. And then the second half was just all Trojan. I mean, all Ducks. Um, Just a a really impressive performance against a USC team that had been playing pretty well. We're actually, you know, first place in the Pac-12 South coming into this game. So huge win for Oregon. Huge win for Utah as well uh, because the Utes needed the Trojans to lose to get back in control of the division. So really setting up that potential 11 and 1 Oregon versus 11 and 1 Utah Pac-12 championship that could really have big playoff implications. 
undoubtedly could be really exciting to see where that goes for the the Pac-12. Switching gears, we're talking best wins. Obviously, the team that won this game might consider this the best win of the week. But what did you see as the worst loss of the week? Well, it certainly hasn't been the year that Scott Frost envisioned in Lincoln. Um, Nebraska came into the year as the media pick to win the Big Ten West. We both scoffed at that in the preseason, thought it was way too early to think the Cornhuskers could take the the Big Ten West division. Um, And now it's looking like Nebraska might not even make a bowl game. They're going to have to upset either Wisconsin or Iowa over the next three weeks, along with beating Maryland on the road to get the six wins. If not, they're going to miss a bowl, which seems, you know, I think we both expected some second year struggles for Nebraska, but I think we both had them as bowl team, as a bowl team in year two under Frost. Uh, I didn't expect that they would be on the chopping block, but after going on the road and losing to a just completely injury depleted Purdue team, you know, down to their third quarterback. Rondell Moore has been out for most of the year. They've just had so many injuries on that side of the ball. And for Nebraska not to be able to go and win that game, I think just speaks volumes to the rebuilding job still ahead of Scott Frost. I think it's crazy for anyone to suggest he might be on the hot seat at this point. But certainly been a disappointing season for Nebraska. And I was really shocked to see that they couldn't pull out that game over a really, like I said, just depleted Boilermaker squad. Yeah, exactly. Purdue's put up a lot of fight so far this year, but when you have that much decimation to your roster, it it makes it hard to turn all of the effort in the world into results. But at home in West Lafayette on Saturday, they really did get that result. And, you know, a big part of that as well has just been Adrian Martinez sort of looks like he's almost taking a step back, at least at quarterback. Still putting up the running yards. He's still had two rushing touchdowns this week. But, you know, he he threw for 247 yards on 39 attempts, just 6.3 yards per attempt, and had an interception along the way. Can't say that Purdue necessarily had better quarterback play, but they were at least able to get some points through the air, and I, that made a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Martinez definitely taking a step back um, and having a sophomore slump, as they would say, um, 77th in the country at this point of the season in total QBR. And they really – he was a guy that people had on their Heisman radar coming into the season and really hasn't lived up to that. Yeah, I think it was foolish to put him on a Heisman radar, but – that's why they don't pay me the big bucks. Um, You know, for me, in terms of the worst loss of the week, it was SMU taking their first loss of the year. Um, It's been sort of a magical run for the Mustangs. Uh, they've, They've come close to losing a couple of previous weekends, but the magic finally wore out at the Liberty Bowl. Um, This was one of just the two games that I didn't hit on last week. We'll talk about that more in the third segment. But, you know, it did break the 100 combined points barrier that I I thought it would. I predicted a 52-48 SMU victory. It ended up going 54-48 for Memphis. So pretty close there. It, it it, It went to the high scoring shootout, just absolute barn burner that we were expecting. 
Um, but, you know, SMU dropped from the ranks of the unbeaten, really falling behind in that group of five race. Now Memphis controls the AAC West. Um, it was a game, honestly, where SMU played to stop Kenneth Gainwell, and they did a decent job of doing that. He only got 88 yards and one touchdown on 21 carries, caught two balls for 14 yards, but otherwise, you know, he didn't have a huge presence in that game, but Brady White came through in a big way, 350 yards through the air, three touchdowns. Um, Shane Bouchelle did, you know, had even more yards through the air and three passing touchdowns. In the end, SMU had more total yards of offense, more first downs, fewer penalties, absolutely no turnovers, scored 48 points, and lost this game. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things where if you want to be a championship outfit, you've got to get a couple of stops on defense in the end, and they just couldn't do it. Yeah, and I mean, now the the group of five race is kind of wide open at that point. You don't have any more undefeated teams competing, um, which kind of is a nice segue into my surprise of the week, Zach, if I may. Appalachian State kind of had a, a perfect opportunity, in retrospect, to be fair, because they lost on Thursday, but really a perfect opportunity with SMU going down to really throw their hat in the ring as the top team in the group of five and really strengthen their case to potentially be the first Sunbelt team to break through into the New Year's Six. And then they just cannot figure out the Georgia Southern equation falling 24 to 21 at home on Thursday night on Halloween. Just really a stunning result. This wasn't a Georgia Southern team that came in nearly as highly touted as the Eagles team that beat Appalachian State last year. Um, they've been playing better in recent weeks, but we're still talking about a team that was just four and three coming into the game. Hadn't looked as good still though. I mean, a Georgia Southern team that gave Minnesota a really tight game earlier in the year. Um, but I mean, everyone expected Appalachian state to win. They were a two touchdown favorite at home. Um, and really, you know, it could be the case of potentially looking ahead with South Carolina, uh, on the schedule next week and what would have been arguably the biggest game in school history next week had they handled business against Georgia Southern because, you know, a win over an SEC school, even an SEC school like South Carolina that's only four and five, would have been a huge feather in the cap in terms of their resume for the New Year's Six. So I was very surprised to see Appalachian State fall at home on Thursday. Yeah, total mind blower. I, I was sitting and watching that game when I got home from campus and – I, I, I was among the people that, that thought Appalachian State would be cruising to victory. But at the same time, knowing the history of these two teams and the way that Georgia Southern has ruined App State seasons in the past, I I, I was a little hesitant to, to just sort of anticipate that cruise. Because the Eagles, they, they, they've got their number. They, you know, it was only 10-7 at the half, but they scored 14 straight in the third quarter to open up that lead, that 24-7 lead. And then the Mountaineers showed showed resolve. They, they, they did their damnedest to bounce back, but in the end, just didn't didn't have enough juice to to get it over the top. And you know, the way Zach Thomas played, especially, he threw the ball 51 times. Uh, completed just under 50% of those passes. 
He had three touchdowns, had 271 yards through the air, didn't throw an interception. But the thing is, is you can't be like throwing that many incomplete passes if you're going to win a game. Yes, Shea Wirtz for Georgia Southern only completed one of four, but that's a team that's not going to be throwing the ball a ton. If you're going to heave the ball 51 times, even just five or six more completions could have been the difference between victory and defeat there. Yeah, I think it was a lot of Appalachian State just not playing their game. They're not really a team that throws 50 times in a game. They're more of a balanced offense with um, Zach Evans and Darrington Thomas and Darrington Thomas and those guys that in the backfield. So I, I think really Georgia Southern two years in a row has done a really good job of making Appalachian State play a different game than they wanted to. Yeah, and hats off to to Georgia Southern for doing that, but really disappointing. Now both of the group of five teams that were still undefeated coming into Week Ten exit that week with blemishes on their record and as you said it opens things wide up Boise State's right back in the picture now despite that loss um you you know Cincinnati Memphis both of those teams are are right there in the hunt um I think if App State does go and beat South Carolina um They would potentially have a chance. Of course, the one thing standing in their way now is that Georgia Southern has the head-to-head tiebreaker. And if things go sour and it just ends up, you know, being those two teams, uh, because Georgia State and App State still have to play. So one of those teams won't be in the tie, you know, won't be incorporated into the tiebreaker. So if it comes head-to-head with both the Eagles and the Mountaineers only having one loss in conference, it's going to be a really disappointing end to what will probably be an 11-1 season for App State, not even getting to play for the conference title. Yeah, that's true. And don't count out SMU either. The Mustangs are far from out of it at this point, even after losing to Memphis. Memphis still has to play Cincinnati in the regular season, so one Memphis loss puts SMU back in control of their own destiny. Um, And with the strength of the AAC this season, and also I think we should say something about Navy. I don't think the the midshipmen only have one loss at this point in the season. They still control their own fate. If they're able to come out of the AAC, it wouldn't be a shock to see them get the bid. Yeah, it's true. They and it, they're an interesting case, too, just because they've played so few games so far. You know, they're only 6-1 and one, um, with only seven games played, and they're going into another bye week this week. So um, just the way things line up with that Army-Navy game happening after the AAC championship game as well um, leads to a lot of interesting variables. So it honestly would be really fun to see Navy go 10 and one and then win the AAC title and then go into the army Navy game, 11 and one with a chance for the black Knights to sort of throw a real wrench into the system because then that really begs the question, does the selection committee wait until after the Army-Navy game to determine who their group of five leader is? Because it'd, be really, it, it'd be really hard to keep out a 12-1 and AAC champion Navy team. But it, it beat it, Notre Dame on the road at that point, too. Exactly. But it might be a little bit easier to keep out that team if they lose a second game to Army after winning their conference crown.
That's that's a fascinating scenario. I didn't really envision. So Zach's group of five guru always got the always got the insight there. Yeah, definitely. And then, so I'm in, in terms of my big surprises. We'll just keep talking about the AAC a bit because I I, I love these conversations. Uh, Cincinnati went to East Carolina and only escaped with a three point victory and what ended up being an absolute shootout. Uh, one of the highest scoring games of the week, both teams went over 40 and, you know, Cincinnati came into Greenville as a 24 point favorite against the Pirates, but East Carolina outgained the Bearcats by 176 yards of offense and 16 more first downs. Uh, it was actually surprising that Cincinnati escaped East Carolina with a victory. When you look at those raw numbers, Desmond Ritter was just 12 of 24 passing, had 161 yards with a touchdown and two picks. Um, he did run uh, 12 times for 121 yards, so so mitigated the impact of not having a great day throwing the ball. Uh, Michael Warren really picked things up on the ground, 141 rushing yards and three touchdowns on 18 carries. But, you know, the thing is, is the Bearcats needed an 18-point fourth quarter just to engineer a comeback victory against East Carolina. Uh, Sam Crosa had to kick a 32-yard field goal on the final play of regulation so that Cincinnati could escape atop the AAC East. It's just not supposed to happen for a team of Cincinnati's caliber against a team of East Carolina's caliber. Um, There's a real reason that they were a 24-point favorite in this game, and I honestly thought that might have been too low coming into it. So this was a huge surprise to me. You know, I think it speaks more to me, at least, to East Carolina than it does Cincinnati. I think Mike Houston's done a fantastic job in year one coming from James Madison. East Carolina has been competitive against some quality teams in the AAC. Central Florida only beat them by 13 at home. Uh, Temple only nipped them by 10. I mean, they've been competitive, save for a kind of weird result a couple weeks ago against South Florida where they lost at home by 25. East Carolina has been right there for a bowl bid all year long. Um, So I, I was surprised that ECU had a shot to really pull the upset. I'm not really stunned that they covered that big of a spread. That felt like too big to me. Uh, right away. So I, I think Mike Houston deserves a lot of credit. I think he's got things rolling. I think the Pirates are going to be a team to be reckoned with very soon. I, I guess that's fair. You know, I, I probably shouldn't be, you know, snarking on, on ECU that much, but they're 0-5 in the AAC now. So at the same time as, you know, as competitive as they've been, it, it, it's hard to not see a team like Cincinnati at least come close to beating that spread. So, it, it, at the very least, it, it, it shocked me that it was that as close as it was and that the Bearcats needed a last-second field goal to get it over the top. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't expect there to be an upset brewing, that's for sure. Well, let's shift gears to individual performances before we take our first break. Who do you have for your offensive game ball this week, John? You know, you talked about SMU really having a a concerted effort to take away Kenneth Gainwell. So Memphis really had to get some production from someone else. Um, And they they got in a big, big way um, from senior receiver Antonio Gibson, 
who set a school record for 306 all and scored three different times in three different ways <laughs> as well. So, you know, he had the 50-yard touchdown pass from Brady White in the second quarter. He had a 97-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. And he had a 78-yard touchdown run that really, I mean, at that point, looked to be the final nail in the coffin. That gave Memphis a 54-32 lead with nine minutes to go. So just a terrific performance by him. Gibson had 97 rushing yards, 130 receiving yards and then added 159 kick return yards. So a huge night for him when Memphis really needed every single last one of those yards from him to be able to escape because SMU obviously rallied at the end and really had a shot. So huge game from him. Like I said, the Tigers needed someone to step up, and he really came up in a big way. Yeah, that's a great pick, you know, both on offense and special teams, just working double duty for the Tigers. So, I, I, I really like that pick. Uh, my offensive game ball goes to another person who really put in a major contribution for an offense in, in a close victory. Um, giving mine out to Bryce Perkins, uh, the Virginia quarterback this week, who was absolutely pivotal to that 38-31 win on the road in Chapel Hill against North Carolina. Uh, Perkins went 30 of 39 passing for 378 yards and three scores through the air. But he also led the Cavaliers in rushing with 112 yards and two touchdowns on 24 carries. So this wasn't just a, a matter of a quarterback having one huge scramble that went for big yardage. He put in workhorse levels on the ground out of the backfield as a rusher at the same time that he threw the ball 39 times. Uh, so yeah, Perkins was involved in 63 of Virginia's 72 offensive plays, and he accounted for all but 27 of their offensive yards in... In an impressive victory on the road. So just for that sheer volume of contribution to his team's winning effort, I, I couldn't resist giving it to Perkins this week. Just to highlight the, the wackiness of being that critical to your your victory. Now that's a, that's a great choice as well. That was a much higher scoring game than I think either of us envisioned. We kind of both expected the defenses to lead the charge. That became a shootout a lot quicker than I think either of us really expected. Yeah, that was wild. Well, switching over to defense, who'd you have for your defensive game ball this week? You know, I had to give it to one of the guys who helped me look smart picking Miami to upset Florida State last week. One of the things I talked about last week in the preview of that game was that I thought Florida State's offensive line would really struggle to block Miami up front, and boy, did that prove to be prophetic. Yeah. Gregory Ruckler had a monster evening for the Hurricanes. Uh, the redshirt freshman defensive ends turned into a star for Manny Diaz's defense this year. He's got 12 sacks on the year. Four of them came on Saturday against Florida State. Just over 200 yards of total offense and just 10 points. And what ultimately ended up being the final nail in Willie Taggart's coffin there um, in Tallahassee. So a dominant performance from Russo. A dominant performance for a Miami defense in total that ended up with nine sacks and 16 stops in the backfield, and he's the guy who led the charge. That's a great pick, um, and a really impressive win by Miami in a game that we talked about last week is having lost some of its luster in recent years. So, yeah, it was good to see the Canes do as well as they did. 
Um, for me, just to close things out and round it right back to where I started in this segment, my game ball goes out to Brady Breeze, the safety for Oregon, that ended up playing a huge role for the Ducks. He was the one who recovered that Keaton Slovis fumble when USC was on the Oregon 3, totally killing that Trojans drive and uh, getting the ball back for what resulted in a touchdown going the other way. So that was a 14-point swing right there. And then, uh, you know, Oregon scores that touchdown on the ensuing uh, Trojans drive once, once USC gets the ball back. Breeze picks off Slovis and runs it back 32 yards for that pick six touchdown. Um, so yeah, you know, Breeze in a lot of ways was directly accountable for a 28 point swing in a game that went absolutely bonkers by the end of it. And he ended the game as the Ducks leader in tackles with seven total tackles, three of them solo tackles from the safety position. So you know, in all phases there, being really alert for when the fumble popped out, for being right on top of that pick and darting right to the end zone, and then for being in good position all around for tackling when he was needed for it. Uh, Breeze gets my ball this week. Yeah, great pick. He had a great game. Just a huge performance overall uh, for the Oregon defense, really stepping up and shutting down a really good USC offense with really talented quarterback, really talented receiver. So huge game for him. Yeah, I, I was thrilled with it. On that note, everybody, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to be switching gears and talking about week 11 picks against the spread. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody. We're switching gears to talk about Week 11 picks against the spread. We've identified and isolated five key games to look at for in, this, in this segment. We're going to start out with a key game between interdivisional foes in the Big Ten, uh, fighting for the governor's victory bell. That, of course, is Penn State and Minnesota, who are both coming off buys for this battle of undefeated uh, division leaders and or co-leaders. So Penn State comes into this as a seven-point favorite on the road in Minneapolis. What do you think is going to transpire there between the Gophers and Nittany Lions? You know, it's really interesting. I, I, I don't think anyone saw this as being the second biggest game of the second weekend of November, right? You got uh, obviously, Alabama and LSU is the headliner, but Penn State and Minnesota a pair of undefeated Big Ten teams. Not a huge surprise that Penn State would be undefeated at this point in the season, but a pretty big surprise that Minnesota is still undefeated. Um, I think Minnesota is a good team. I think they're a product of the schedule so far, though, to be fair. They haven't really played a lot of top-end teams. Um, they've kind of been fortunate to be this they played better in recent weeks but they opened the season with a seven point win over south dakota state a three-point win over fresno state a three-point win over georgia southern and a touchdown win over purdue before kind of rolling the last few weeks over overmatched big 10 foes uh the schedule gets real this week though um i the one thing that's giving me a little bit of pause i think it's going to be maybe the best crowd in minnesota football history uh you're going to have a raucous student section i wish the game was kicking off a little bit later i think an 11 a.m kick can kind of dampen the mood a little bit because it's still so early uh 
call it 12, 8, 12 p.m. technically, I guess, for in Big Ten country, 11 a.m. where I am. But um, the Gophers have been really good. I think Penn State's just on another level, though, in my opinion. Um, I think the Nittany Lions are one of the five best teams in college football this year. Uh, I think the top four kind of set, but I think Penn State's right there with a chance to jump up. Um, so I, I think the Nittany Lions are going to win. I think they're going to cover. The spread's been hovering around a touchdown in favor of Penn State at this point. I think that's probably fair. I think that um, I think Minnesota keeps it close for the first little bit, but I think overall Penn State's just too much. They're too well balanced on offense. They're too good on defense. Um, I think Penn State ultimately wins twenty-seven to ten. Interesting. So yeah, you've got a bigger victory there. Honestly, I like Minnesota. I hate to say it. Uh, the 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 kid who grew up a Badgers fan in me really hates to say it, but Minnesota's playing damn well. Uh, you know, both of these teams are scoring around thirty-eight and a half points a game. But I think you're absolutely right about Penn State. They're giving up half as many points a game as Minnesota is at this point of the year. Uh, the Nittany Lions are second in the country, giving up only 9.6 points a game. And Minnesota is a very respectable 22nd, but that still means they're giving up 20 points a game. So that disparity is ultimately going to prove the difference. But I think both teams are going to step up on defense. I think this ends up being a really low-scoring affair. And the Gophers, as you said, keep it close. But I think they keep it close far longer. And this ends up being something like 23-20 Penn State to the point where Minnesota covers that seven-point spread. But... Penn State is the team that walks away still undefeated. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly got the capabilities. I think the home field advantage will play big for Minnesota. Um, but I, I like Penn State a lot. I, I think Penn State's right there with Ohio State and really got a real a real good chance to steal the Big Ten. Yeah, they certainly do. That game uh, between the Nittany Lions and the Buckeyes is going to be huge. Of course, can't look ahead, but that's... Uh, something to keep in mind down the road. Switching gears to our second game this week, we've got Kansas State heading to Texas as a five-point underdog. Um, You know, the Wildcats have been really phenomenal at flipping the field on special teams this year. They've had that obviously landmark upset that threw everything into upheaval over Oklahoma. Um... And then, you know, we've got a Texas team that's had its own question marks this year. So what do you think is going to happen for Kansas State when they head to Austin this week? Texas's defense has just been off this year. The Longhorns have given up 485, and we see to go is they really couldn't tackle Scott Thompson and uh, the Kansas State running backs. They just couldn't handle them, you know, and, and Kansas State was more physical. I think that's going to carry over. And Kansas State's going to sweep the Red River this year. I think the Wildcats are just too physical at the point of attack. Um, Sam Ellinger, obviously, is going to keep Texas in the game. But I think Kansas State's just overall a better team. I think the Longhorns are going to end up suffering their fourth loss of the season, which is wildly unexpected at the second weekend of November to see Texas with four losses when they were considered a potential playoff team this year. So I just think Kansas State's better coached. I think they're better overall. I think they're more physical. And I think... Just Texas's defensive shortcomings are really what's going to bite them here. Kansas State will kind of grind it out, 
control the clock, punch in long touchdown drives that keeps Ellinger and that Texas offense on the sideline. Um, I like Kansas State to win 30-27. to 27. Okay, folks, this is the point where we agree this week. So uh, bet against us. When we agree, it doesn't look good. So that that fair warning in place, I, I agree with you. Uh, as I said, you know, Kansas State's been great on special teams. They've been really good at protecting the football when they have it on offense. Um, they're winning by a bigger point differential than the Longhorns at this point of the season, um, about a field goal more per game. And as you said, that Texas defense has just been ripe for the picking by good players, and I think Skylar Thompson's going to have a great game against that that D. I wrote it down 31-27, Kansas State. So wow. we're really close on this one. So, so so fade, pick Texas. Yeah, take that for what you will. Um, Longhorns better smile at this point. On to our third game. This is one that's a little bit nearer and dearer to my heart. Iowa heads to Camp Randall Stadium to take on a Wisconsin team that's a nine and a half point favorite. Uh, given the quality of both of these defensive units, do you think that nine and a half points is too high for this one, John? It really does feel too high to me, particularly when you're looking at an over-under that's set around 38 points, which is about as low of an over-under I've seen all season for any team, uh, any two teams playing. I think Wisconsin is going to win this game, but I think eight and a half, nine and a half, wherever you're getting it, I think is just too many points. I, you know, obviously Wisconsin's strength is the running game with Jonathan Taylor, but Iowa's run defense has given up only 88 yards per game. Iowa, same way. They like to run the ball, control the clock. Wisconsin doesn't give up many rushing yards either, though. So I I do think the Badgers are going to break free and finally get a win after kind of struggling uh, and losing their last two games. I think the bye week will have done them well. I expect Jack Cohn to play better this week and for the offensive line to open up some holes for Taylor. I do expect this to be pretty low scoring, although I do think the over will cash on the 38 if you can get that somewhere. I think Wisconsin wins 24-17, but I think there's enough room in that nine and a half to to make me think that Iowa at least can cover the spread. All right, we're back to disagreement. Here's why. So I think Wisconsin covers the spread. I think this hits the under. I think this ends up Wisconsin 21-10. I think it'll be even more defensive than you're saying. I think Wisconsin pulls away thanks to a defensive touchdown, the way that that unit has been playing this year and the way that they've been getting scores this year, I think that's going to make a huge difference. And then I think Taylor's going to burst through late in the game uh, when it's close, 14-10, get a late score to cover. And so I, that's what I that's what I think is going to go down. I think the Badgers cover that. I think they win outright, and I think we get nowhere near 38 points. So It wouldn't surprise me if... You know, there's a new meme in college football like a few years ago when, um, oh man, what coach was it that was celebrating when it was zero to zero on Frank the, Beamer. on the clock? Do what? what Frank Beamer. Yes. Thank you. Yes. It was Frank Beamer, a zero, zero regulation score. One of my favorite memes in college football, him with his fists raised in the air as the game was tied zero, zero. Wouldn't shock me if we get something like that in this game, but 
38 is just such a low spread. I don't know if there's value in picking uh, that, but it certainly could be under that. Um, I do think there'll be a little bit more scoring, but definitely a defensive slugfest. Well, at least we got our disagreement there. Let's move on to a game that's nearer and dearer to your heart, John. LSU heads to Tuscaloosa this week to take on Bama in what's obviously the game of the week. The Tigers come to uh, Bryant-Denny Stadium with a a seven-point underdog status hanging over their heads. We've got two of the country's top five scoring offenses doing battle this week obviously against a couple of really good defenses as well. Um, Do you think it's offense or defense that it's going to win out in this one on Saturday? Yeah, I think that, I think the offenses are going to reign supreme. um, But I do think whichever defense can kind of come up in the fourth quarter and maybe make a stop at the end uh, will make a big difference. This isn't your typical Alabama LSU defensive struggle that we've seen so often in recent years. Um, Alabama's offense has been trending in, in this direction for years now, playing a lot better. But LSU has been the difference this year after, you know, the pro-style offense that they've run for so many years and have struggled to win the big games with. You know, they've now moved in with the hiring of Joe Brady from the Saints. Um, and now Joe Burrow is just wheeling and dealing with taking advantage of all the skill position talent that LSU's always had. They've always had this amount of skill position talent. They just haven't had a quarterback or an offensive scheme to take advantage of it. Much like Alabama, Alabama's always had talent like this at receiver too, just never with the offense to take advantage of it now with like this. The big question that looms over this game, Zach, is the is the health of Tua Tungavailoa, who obviously injured his ankle against Tennessee of three weeks ago, uh, missed the Arkansas game, and then Alabama had a bye week last week. All appears to be well from what I'm hearing and seeing. He practiced today. There's some video out there of him planting, throwing, looking pretty good. I'd be shocked if he doesn't play against LSU on Saturday, but it, it all depends on how effective he can be. I think if Tua was 100%, I'd feel a lot better, obviously, as an Alabama fan for this game. But, you know, every year we hear the same story, right? I think this LSU team is different, but do we not hear this every year that, hey, this LSU team is the team that can finally dethrone Alabama? We heard it last year when Alabama went to Baton Rouge and shut out LSU 29 to nothing. Two weeks of buildup for that game for that dud. You know, this is consistently one of the biggest games of the year in college football and has been. But this rivalry has been completely one-sided for nearly a decade now. Alabama's won the last eight games between these two teams. A lot of them haven't been very close, especially in recent years. I do think this one will be close. The difference, I think, comes down to I trust Alabama's defense just a little bit more than I trust LSU's defense at this point. I think Alabama's cornerbacks in particular with Patrick Sertan and Trayvon Diggs, one of those guys will come up if not Xavier McKinney at safety, one of those guys will come up and make a play late in the fourth quarter that ends up being the difference in this game. But expect points. I got Alabama 38-34. So I think LSU can cover the touchdown or so spread. Um, but I do think Alabama ultimately wins the game. And I think it's I think it's going to be one of the best games of the season. Yeah, I think this is going to be a thriller as well. Um, you know, I am not as well tuned in, so... You know, I've only heard those rumblings about Tua playing. Uh, so obviously, if he does play and plays well, it, it really changes the tenor of this game. I'm honestly, though, I I'm 
I'm skeptical that he's going to be 100% for this game or even close to that. I think he's, you know, it's one thing to look good in practice when you're you're able to plant and you have time. I think when you're in the heat of the battle and against an LSU defense that will give him some fits and starts, especially knowing that he might not be as mobile as normal and able to move around as effectively as normal. So, you know, if Tua can't go or if he's not able to be as effective as possible, the real question for me is does Mac Jones offer enough to beat an LSU defense and to keep pace with a Joe Burrow-led offense? And I think the answer is no there. I think we're going to see a high-scoring game. I think also another big question for me is which running game discovers itself because um, who, whoever can find balance out of the backfield is going to have a much easier time in this game. I think I think Alabama scores 38 as well. I'm with you there. But I think Joe Burrow gets a late touchdown and LSU wins 41-38. Well, I don't I know, like that pick. I, I'm I, not going to lie. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't think you would, but you know, it'll just make it all the sweeter if you're right next weekend. So you know, I think it's a toss-up game. If 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 Tua doesn't play, though, I think it's a. I think it's a two touchdown LSU win. I think that's how much Tua means to this Alabama team this year. He's the one guy Alabama can't afford to to lose. Just as much as LSU couldn't afford to lose Joe Burrow, that would be a two touchdown swing in the other direction pretty clearly at this point. So it does really come down to Tua's effectiveness and what he can do. Um, I think home field plays kind of a big role too there uh, with Alabama getting to host LSU. I'd probably be taking the Tigers if this game was in Baton Rouge. Uh, But with it being in Tuscaloosa, it gives me just a little more in favor of Alabama. And really, you know, an Alabama win here. And honestly, Zach, you should probably be rooting for LSU. So I, I completely understand in terms of trying to get your ducks into the college football playoff where your head is here, because with LSU's resume, a loss here probably keeps them ahead of the ducks in the playoff hierarchy. So I, I see where your head is. I see the I see the long game you're playing over there. You got me figured out. Let's move on to the last pick before I am, you know, reveal more secrets. We're going to go to Big 12 country to look at Iowa State's game at Oklahoma. Uh, the Cyclones come into this as a 13-point underdog. And, you know, it's been an interesting season in Ames after being looked at as a preseason contender in the Big 12. Uh, but Iowa State still has has chances in this conference. And this offers a big opportunity. So... First and foremost, is 13 points too big a spread in this one? And second, does Iowa State have any chance of actually pulling off an upset? They'll certainly need Brock Purdy to play better than he played in their last game against Oklahoma State. Uh, He's obviously had a really strong season, but those three picks were so costly at home against the Cowboys a couple of weeks ago to the point that, you know, they ended up losing the game at home and really ruining an opportunity to move up in the Big 12, especially with Texas kind of falling off the, the map. Um, I I think 13.5 is probably fair, and I think it's just enough to get me to pick Oklahoma to cover. Um, you've got an Oklahoma team that's, you know, had 
two weeks to think about that loss to Kansas State, and I know it's been burning inside of Jalen Hurts for two weeks just knowing the type of competitor he is. I think he has a huge game on Saturday night um, against Iowa State. I think, obviously, Brock Purdy's got enough to to move forward and push an Oklahoma defense that was, you know, exposed pretty well against Kansas State, particularly with Purdy's ability as a dual-threat kind of guy. Uh, but I think Oklahoma bounces back. The 13-and-a-half gives me just enough to pick the Sooners, so give me Oklahoma 45-31. All right. See, I it, it's interesting. Purdy is one of those hit-or-miss quarterbacks and definitely did not look at his best against Oklahoma State. I'll grant you that. But at the same time, he's quietly been throwing for more yards per game than Hurts has this season. He's leading the Big 12 in that category. And so, I, you know, against an Oklahoma defense, I think he has the potential to have a big game as well. Um, but that said, you know, Hurts was not the reason that Oklahoma lost to Kansas State either. Even despite that loss, he posted a 213 passer rating, and he's still on track to just completely obliterate the passer efficiency rating record. Um. But, I, you know, I, I think the Sooners' D will do just enough to hold on for victory. But I think it's going to be close. I think uh, Cyclones linebacker Orion Vance is going to have an interesting game. I think he'll give the Sooners' offensive line some fits and could give Jalen Hurts a bit of a a scramble sort of day. But Hurts is going to play up to the occasion, as he always seems to do. He's going to account for all six Sooners touchdowns to keep pace with Burrow in the Heisman race, and he's going to lead Oklahoma to a 42-34 win, which means that the Cyclones will cover, but they're going to lose on the road. Yeah, I, I like it. I It would it certainly... Um... Certainly has the capability. Iowa State's certainly good enough. It just depends, again, on which Cyclones team shows up. Are they going to play with more consistency than we've seen for most of the season is really the big question to me. Exactly. Yeah, it's one that could go either way. And, you know, with that spread at 13, 13 and a half, right there on the cusp of two touchdowns, it's it, it's really an interesting one. I mean, if it bets up to 14, you can bet damn well that, you're going to see more action in the opposite direction. So on that note, we're going to take our second break, everybody, before we come back for the final segment, do a little bit of introspection on our garbage calls of week 10 before we get into upsets and locks and some tailgater fare. Stay tuned. We'll catch you on the other side. Welcome back to the final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. Before we dive back into week 11 and look at our upsets and our locks of the week, we're going to get into a little bit of introspection, do an autopsy of our picks from week 10, and look at our garbage calls. So, carving up all of my picks, I went 5-2 and two against the spread last week. Actually had a great week. I, I, I'm pretty excited with how things transpired. I missed on SMU Memphis, but I came really close to picking the final score on that one, so I knew it was going to be close one way or the other, and, uh, you know, I'll I'll fall within two points of a triple-digit score on that one, but 
I said Florida was going to win 28-24 against Georgia in the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. And I did so ignoring all the signs I was talking about favoring Georgia as I, you know, we talked about the team. I said that Georgia was better at getting points in the red zone. I said they've been more consistent in all phases of the game. And I picked Florida anyway. Not necessarily the smartest thing to do. Jake Fromm had a solid day, went 20 of 30 for 279 and two touchdowns, just what you ask for from a Georgia quarterback. The defense held the Gators to just 21 rushing yards in their shutdown effort. And, you know, it was one of those days where Georgia had everything going for them. It was exactly what you expect from a championship caliber team looking to nail down the SEC East for another year in a row. And from, you know, I said he, he had a perfectly workmanlike Georgia day, but he had a great day. It, it's, it, it, it's one of those things that I think I tend to compare him against other former Georgia quarterbacks that are suiting up around the country. But looking at him on his own merits, Jake Fromm has been playing really great for Georgia this year. So I should probably stop ignoring that fact. Well, you're not alone in that. I also picked Florida, ignoring my better judgment. I did the same thing last year, and in my picks column on Blitz, I wrote about, you know, that I should have learned my lesson last year. I knew this was going to end up happening. Um, But, you know, maybe next year, Zach. Maybe next year I'll learn my lesson and pick Georgia, and then obviously Florida will win at that point because that's just how stuff goes. Um, But speaking of those former Georgia quarterbacks, Jacob Eason had a pretty good day going for Washington for a while. Um, against Utah. It's a really good Utah defense. I picked the Huskies to beat the Utes last week. Looked pretty good for a while, to be honest. I mean, they broke out to a 14-3 lead, led 21-13 in the third quarter. I almost sent you a snarky text message just to let you know, hey, I told you about Washington. Glad I didn't do that um, because I would have had even more crow to eat this week. Uh, Eason threw a pick six late in the third quarter that Jalen Johnson took 39 yards to the house to to get Utah back in it. And it was really all Utes after that. Ended up breaking out a 33-21 lead. Washington scored late to make it a little more respectable. But the Huskies played early on like a team that had their back against the wall and had to have a win. But then kind of fell apart again in the second half, which is really a thing that's been a common theme for Chris Peterson's team this year. So, you know, I picked Washington because it was hard for me to envision them being 5-4 and four through nine games was a big reason. But... Utah is just a better football team. Uh, The top of the Pac-12 with Oregon and Utah, I think, really matches that with pretty much any conference in the country this year. Uh, The Utes Utes and the Ducks both are still really alive in the playoff race. Undoubtedly. Yeah, I I, I think I, I, I hate to be the one that throws the I told you so right back the other direction, but I, I did pick Utah last week. So we'll we'll leave it at that. Um, shifting back to this week, we, we, we've eaten all the crow we can stomach this week. So let's shift into week 11 again. Who do you like as your upset of the week against the spread? I got lucky on this one because I grabbed this on Sunday. As soon as the lines dropped, I knew that this was a, a pretty big mistake by Vegas. Kentucky opened as a two and a half point favorite over Tennessee, um, quickly the Vols have shifted to a one-and-a-half point favorite over Kentucky at this point, but I grabbed Tennessee plus two-and-a-half 
as soon as I saw that line. Um, I think Tennessee as a two and a half point underdog against a Kentucky team that still cannot field a quarterback. Just so that's been said is just crazy. The Vols have actually been playing pretty good football over the last four games. If you look at it, they really started against Georgia. They actually performed decently well before that game got out of hand. They beat Mississippi State. They hung tight with Alabama for a while before blowing out Tennessee and UAB in back-to-back weeks. So the Vols have been playing pretty good football. They beat Kentucky. All it's going to take at that point is a home win over Vanderbilt. Tennessee's going to end up in a bowl game, which looks really unexpected after a 1-4 start to the season. So I think Tennessee is playing a lot better in recent weeks. I think their defense has been a really big reason why. I think the Vols have played really good on that side of the ball. I think they're going to dominate Kentucky up front with Kentucky's just inability to throw the ball. I think they're going to shut down Lynn Bowden in the Kentucky running game. And I think Tennessee ends up winning this one outright um, and covering either the two and a half point underdog spread that I pulled or even the one and a half point favorite spread. So I I like the balls to go to Lexington and win. I, I think that's fair especially with where Kentucky is at in the course of their season and just sort of the resurgence we've seen from Tennessee in recent weeks. So, yeah, I I, I think you're on a a good path with that pick. Personally, I was looking through the spreads, and after TCU was an upset special a couple of weeks ago against Texas, I was really surprised to see them just a a one-and-a-half-point underdog going to Baylor and playing the undefeated Bears on the road. Um, so I had to I had to swoop up that upset special as well. Baylor is coming off that really close call against uh, West Virginia on Halloween. And yes, TCU faded against Oklahoma State on the road, but they've been they've been a spoiler. You know, they played that spoiler role really well against Texas. And I think Gary Patterson's defense is going to do just the exact same thing to Charlie Brewer and have him starting to, as Sam Darnold would say, seeing ghosts out there. And uh, I think in the end, it's going to be another one of those tight defensive battles. And TCU is going to win 17-16 on the road to drop Baylor out of the ranks of the unbeaten and give the Big 12... uh, one more question mark about its worthiness in the college football playoff race with the way that its teams just keep battering each other in a way that we call parity in some leagues and just call mediocrity in others for one reason or another. And it's going to be interesting to see the way the narrative goes for the Big 12 this year. Zach is working that college football playoff committee live on the podcast. I see it. Trying to get those ducks up there again, man. I, I hear you. I, I like this. I, I'm a big fan. <laughs> eh, you got to use the platform you got, right? <laughs> and then shifting over to the lock of the week. I, I Before I go any further with mine, I just want to get something straight right away. Tulsa is not going to beat UCF this week. It's not going to happen. Not with UCF recognizing that there's still a minuscule window of opportunity for them to get back into a New Year's Six game for the third straight year. Obviously, some things need to go their way, but they're not going to mess up the things that they have to do. But that said, Tulsa as a 16-point underdog at home 
at Chapman Stadium is a really dangerous thing to be doing this season. You know, we've seen the Golden Hurricane make life difficult for several AAC teams this year. They had the three-overtime loss at SMU that ended 43-37, and then they lost 42-41 at home to Memphis and just the most heartbreaking and crazy way possible with that missed field goal and a fairly short field goal. It was inside 40 yards. But, What's that like? Yeah. But, you know, missed that last second field goal allows Memphis to escape and set up the big game against SMU. UCF, let, let's let's throw this out as well. They're absolutely rolling up the score on opponents again in recent games. They found their swagger again, but they have a suspect defense that's going to allow Tulsa to keep that deficit around two touchdowns. So I think this is probably like a 45-31 UCF victory, maybe, you know, 52-38. But I think 16's a little too high there, and if you bet Tulsa on that one, you're going to get a lock of a of a payout. I like that pick a lot. Like you mentioned, they've been competitive against teams like Memphis. They were competitive against SMU. They were competitive against Oklahoma State, and they beat a really good Wyoming team earlier in the year at home, too. So, I mean, the Golden Hurricanes are a break here and there away from having a really different season. Don't let their... Two and seven record for you. This is a decent football team that's kind of been the product of some bad luck. Like you said, a chip shot field goal away from upsetting Memphis two weeks ago. So for me, Zach, um, on my lock, I just, you know, Cal was having such a good year until Chase Garbers got hurt, and they've really been a different team since then. Devin Modster just isn't the same kind of player, and Cal just hasn't had any offense to speak of in recent weeks. They got shut out in their last game against Utah. They managed only 17 points against Oregon State, only seven against Oregon. I mean, the Golden Bears have been struggling ever since um, an undefeated start to the season. They've now lost four straight games. They're reeling, and now they've got to play a Washington State team that if nothing else we know can put points on the board. Um, so Anthony Gordon and that offense, I think Cal's defense, still really good Cal defense. I think they'll hold Washington State down for a while um, in that game. But I just can't see Cal scoring enough to stay with the Cougars on Saturday night. Washington State's a seven and a half point favorite. I think that should probably be around 10 plus, to be honest. I ultimately see Washington State winning something along the lines of 31 to 14, 31, 17, something like that. I just think the Cougars have too much on offense. I don't think Cal's going to have much of an answer. Yeah, I, 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 it really was sad the way that Garbers went down and things kind of collapsed for Cal because they were that really exciting story at the beginning of the year for the Pac-12 and a team that really could have thrown even more of a wrench into the Pac-12 North had he remained healthy the whole year. So... I, I think that's a really fair, really solid pick to be making there, and I agree with you that it could very easily be in double digits, that spread. Well, moving on from from Week 11 games to our stomachs, let's uh, think about some food and drink before we wrap up this week's podcast. What are you looking to be eating this weekend, John? 
You know, one of my favorite weekends of the year is LSU week, not just because it's Alabama LSU and it's a big game, because it's low country boil weekend. Um, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. We did this last year, um, getting the big outdoor cooker out, boiling up um, some shrimp and potatoes and Koneka sausage. It really, really whatever you want to throw in really pairs well with this kind of stuff. So cooking that. Um, and then dumping it on a huge picnic table of newspaper and stuff and just going to town. Uh, and that's the kind of food that really lasts all day because you cook so damn much of it. Even if you don't mean to, you just end up with just so much food. It's kind of ridiculous, but it's also good. The corn and the potatoes taste so good. Throw a little Old Bay in there um, and then season it a little bit more if you want. Uh, all of that is just so good, and it's just perfect for LSU weekends. It's always been um, – it's been a good luck charm for one. And I like to pair that with uh, a more local beer. Uh, so Birmingham's Good People Brewery, um, a really good place to grab a beer um, if you're in Birmingham. But also I'm a really – with the weather kind of turning cool, I know it's been probably turning cool for you, Zach, in Pennsylvania, but – I live on the Gulf Coast. It doesn't really get that cold here. But this past weekend was dropping into the 30s in the evening time, which for people around here means I think the apocalypse is beginning or something like that. So with a little bit of nip in the air, man, it's just I went and got a six pack of good people IPA at the store this weekend. It just feels like perfect IPA weather, Uh, a nice hoppy beer, 7.1% ABV. So it'll keep you nice and warm on the inside. Uh, It's sitting in the freezer right now, Zach. I'd be lying if I told you I think I can hold off all the way until Saturday before I break open um, a few of those. But I'm hoping I can wait to pair those with the Low Country Boil this weekend. Nice. That sounds really great. I think you have a good pairing going there. And, uh, yeah, I I hope you have a couple of brews left to uh, try out with everything you're cooking up. So, in my case, I'm going back to an old... um, favorite of mine from when I worked in Italian restaurants. Um, I'm going to make up some arancini. And if you're not familiar with this, it's basically something you make with old risotto. Um, So obviously I'll have to make up a batch of risotto, which means my wife and I are going to be eating well for a couple of days. But, uh, you know, make that up with some fresh stock, probably uh, cut up some, get some mushrooms and chop those up as well, sauteed with garlic and onions, and then sauteing the rice down and slow cooking the, the, the arborio rice down with the stock. Cook it, you know, just past al dente, or, you know, pull it at al dente, get to eat some of it, and then just let it cook down a little bit more as it cools. Um... Stuff it with a blend of cheeses, usually do like mozzarella and Parmesan, Asiago, um, you know, a little bit harder cheeses. You don't want something that's just going to melt quickly and ooze out right away. But you're basically making balls and stuffing the cheese inside and then closing it up so that the ball is there. And then breading it and frying it. So basically this is like the original mozzarella stick, if you will. Um, but with that nice arborio, like creamy risotto crust, and then the cheese melting inside, and then that crispy breaded outside. Serve it with whatever red sauce you love. 
Um, but yeah, these are something that was a staple of a couple of different Italian restaurants that I've worked at over the years. And it's not something I do often, but it's one of those things where it's just really warm. Uh, you know, the hotter you can eat it out of the fryer, the better. But it's one of those things where if you crisp them up real nice, they'll stay throughout the day. And, you, you know, you go back to them or even just keep the oil warm so you can just come back and fry a couple off at a time. And, oh, just a great way to spend a, a cooler fall day. And so, speaking of fall, you know, it's the perfect time of the year, you know, that bucolic cliched, you know, discussion of going to orchards and buying some cider. And, uh, you know, I talked a couple of weeks ago, went to the cidery, got some hard cider. But with my wife back in town, we've had a lot of cider in the house lately. Most of it is your classic non-alcoholic kind. But I'm looking to get a little bit of spiced rum this weekend. Um, I'm personally a big fan of Sailor Jerry. My wife really loves Kraken. Might have to buy a bottle of each, depending on Pennsylvania liquor laws. Um, I really have not delved too much into restocking my liquor cabinet since moving out here because the liquor laws are a little wacky, but it's time to go and get myself some more rum and uh, might have to buy bottles of each of those and try it out with the I think we have three different jugs of cider in our fridge right now um, from a couple different places, and I'm sure there'll be at least one or two more procured before the end of it. So that ought to be really fun. And I, you know, they don't necessarily pair identically together, the the fried cheese balls and, uh, you know, spiced cider uh, or spiced rum cider, but it's what I want to eat, and it's what I want to drink. So that's what I'm going to do, damn it. Kraken reminds me of college, man. We used to pound that with, oddly enough, Mountain Dew. If you're ever just feeling on a whim, it combined together just tastes just like cream soda. I don't know how or anything, but we drank that by the gallon full when I was in college. That's fascinating. Yeah, I I would not have guessed that combination turning into such a flavor, but... Uh, rock on. Uh, you know, I don't have Mountain Dew around the house much these days, and I don't have uh, Kraken around the house much these days, obviously, as I said. But next time I, you know, if I, I, if I do indeed get a bottle of both of them this weekend, I might just have to try that out, because now I'm really intrigued. One of those just random college pairings, right, where you're broke and you're like, hey, I got some Kraken that someone left at the house. I got this little bit of Mountain Dew. I wonder how these things taste together. Actually, well, again, this was a few years ago, so, I mean, I could have been just completely out of my mind at that point, and it's awful. So report back if you end up doing that is all I'm saying. Certainly, yeah. College palates and college budgets certainly do necessitate odd pairings sometimes, Uh But it's definitely something I'm curious enough about that I will end up trying this. On that note, everybody, it's been really great getting to talk with you again this week. Um, Always a pleasure as we dive further and further into the 2019 season to have this time with you every Wednesday. Um, So I hope that you have a wonderful Week 11, that your favorite team or teams have all the success that they possibly can unless they're playing my team. 
And that's the essence of fanaticism right there. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back again next Wednesday to talk with you. For the Saturday Blitz podcast, I'm Zach Bagalke signing off. Thanks again.